the letter, the epistle of Galatians, and we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, and without knowing what Pastor George would say this morning in the, you know, in the Sunday school hour, the title of the message this morning is Contending for the Gospel. <clears throat> it wasn't planned in that way, but uh, I'm always amazed at God's, uh, God's providence and, uh, and how when we are approaching scripture, even in the Sunday school studies that we lay out, how oftentimes there's a correlation between what we see in our Sunday morning Bible study time and, and what we uh, approach, what text we approach, what we learn, what we hear during the preaching time on Sunday morning. So, uh, contending for the gospel. Before we uh, read the word, let us pray together. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we approach your holy word, we recognize it's living it's active, it's powerful, it's sharper than a double-edged sword, and it pierces deep within division of joint, bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and it discerns the truths and the intents of our hearts, for that's what your word even says. So as we hear your word and sit under it this morning, God, would you speak to us? Let your spirit work in our lives unhindered, unencumbered, have free reign in the midst of our hearts and minds, and Father, be exalted. Lord, influence our minds this morning. Let your Holy Spirit uh, illuminate us. Uh, give us eyes through which to see and ears to hear. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in your home, maybe I'm speaking to parents with children. In your home, if your children are, uh, are bickering back and forth and fighting, what kind of environment does that create? Is it a peaceable environment? Is it a frustratingly tiring environment? Uh, environment where you just want to say go to bed um is it <laughs> is it one of these uh is it is it an environment that you want to be in or one that you don't want to be in right i think it's one that we don't want to be in <clears throat> and that's the effect that disunity has in our homes right we can magnify that a little bit if we if we put it under the microscope and we say okay well or if we take it out from under the microscope maybe and we we look at a bigger picture we can say well that the, that in general, uh, over a long period of time, becomes an unhealthy thing for a family, right? Or then we even take it a little bit, a uh, little bit broader, look at a broader picture, and we say, well, that's that that creates some unhealthy people, which then may, may bleed over into a unhealthy work environment. Or if we looked even on a bigger scale, we might say, well, that sort of thing, disunity within a group of people, a community, could really cause uh, consternation and a lack of desire to be there. How many of you really like to go to your homeowners association meetings? Right. <laughs> Oftentimes, it's a place of um, just disagreement, right? Disunity. Well, if we think about that in the life of the church, we might think the same thing. You know, it, is, is church a place where there ought to be disunity? Is church a place where there ought to be bickering and, and infighting? Well, no, it certainly isn't. 
And in one sense, this is really what Paul is getting at in Galatians chapter 2. He's, I mean, he's really drilling down deep to say this is the foundational, the fundamental thing that we must be unified around, and it's the gospel. So without anything else to say, let me read from, Genesis, uh, from Galatians chapter 2. <laughs> Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, follow along. Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and said before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary... When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace that was given me, they gave, perceived the grace that was given to me, rather, they gave to me the right hand of fellowship to me and to Barnabas, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. It's tempting to read the first two chapters of Galatians and grow impatient in searching for an application from the text to our modern 21st century Western lives. It's tempting to want to just kind of fast forward right through those first two chapters. And so I kind of want to give us some background to say, okay, what in the world does this have to do with us at Cross Point here in Baton Rouge today? So Paul's writing to the Galatian churches. And in the Galatian churches, it's more than one, it's, a, it's the region. And so in the Galatian churches, he's resisting those that he calls false brothers, false Christians. He calls them false Christians. That's what he means by false brothers. They say they're Christians, but they're really not. They're what we would call Judaizers. They've come into the... So they're, they're Jews who supposedly had been converted, but they're wanting to take Christians and make them back into Jews. So they've come into the fellowship, and he says that they're spies. They've come in as spies to teach a false gospel, which he says in in chapter 1, which really is no gospel at all. There is no other gospel. There's one true gospel. Paul argues that, and we saw it in verses 1 through 10. And so he's astonished, he says. Paul's astonished that the Galatians have, have so easily, so quickly deserted God who has called them through the grace of Christ into this new covenant relationship with himself. The God of all creation has invited you into a relationship, Paul says, and now you're all of a sudden, you're just leaving him so easily. And so in chapter 2, he begins telling them 
as a way of refutation. He begins telling them of his trip to Jerusalem where he met with the apostles and he discussed this very matter that's tripping them up. He discussed with the apostles in Jerusalem the very things that the false teachers are bringing into the congregation. And so we also, and, and that's that one has to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. And we see that Paul goes, in verse 2, he goes because of a revelation from God. We also make note of a couple things. He took two people with him, two of his associates. He took Barnabas, who was a well-respected Jew among the early church. And then he also, he took a new disciple, a guy by the name of Titus. Now, Titus, we learn, was Greek. He was an uncircumcised Gentile. And this was a difficult thing for him to bring Titus into Jerusalem. So the struggle that we as modern readers of the Bible encounter as we approach a text like this is we we don't really have a framework to understand the cultural variance of Paul's day. Issues like a visit from Paul and his associates to Jerusalem or a consultation between Paul and between the apostles bringing Titus into Jerusalem, they don't quite relate to to struggles of modern-day believers. So here's a valid question. So why not just agree to disagree and go their separate ways, right? I mean, why not just let our differences be what they may and go our separate ways? Why is this text even included in the Bible? One Old Testament author often says, it's helpful to remember that while the Bible was written for us, it's not written to us right? It's written for us, but it's not written. I mean, it was written to the Galatians, right? Now, it's written for us, but it's written to the Galatians. They're, they're contextual things that are going on in the culture of the Galatians. And so, there were false teachers who were claiming that following Jesus and believing in him was not enough for salvation, In other words, they were saying a person has to keep the Jewish law or they have to keep certain parts of the Jewish law, certain ceremonial things from the Jewish law. And and, and the point of contention was over the issue of circumcision. So they claimed Jesus plus circumcision equals a right relationship with God. It equals salvation. So one question that we have to answer is why was circumcision or uncircumcision such a big deal? Well, since the time of Abraham, for the entire history of the children of Israel, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with his people. And in order to be part of God's covenant people and to have salvation, have that security of salvation, men had to be circumcised and they had to live according to the Old Testament law. And so circumcision was, you can think of it as the gate of entrance into God's covenant family, into Judaism. It was the way that a person entered into God's covenant family. Now, I think we, we're at least familiar with the difficulty of breaking tradition in our own world, right? But, but to speak of circumcision as merely a tradition would be an understatement because for the Jew, it represented a way of life. It was the foundation for the whole community of faith. But even beyond that, even even in the Old Testament, we get this understanding of maybe a, a deeper interpretation of this kingdom gate. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, I think we have it on the screen here. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 
verses 12 through 16. You can follow along as I read. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. And then he says in verse 16, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. We get this understanding of what God is really after in the sign of the covenant. And what he's really after here is the heart. He's after the heart of his people. The sign was the gate of entrance, sure. But what God is really concerned about is the heartbeat that, that, it, that his people have for following him. You know, this really leads us to a second question, and that question is, what is required for acceptance with God? What's required? What's required of your life to be acceptable before God? Kids, what's required of you to be acceptable before God? You know, this is a a much broader question. So the Jews certainly had their way of answering this question, which involved not only circumcision, but obedience, as we just saw from Deuteronomy chapter 10. But ultimately, to answer this question from the Christian vantage point from Scripture, we would say the answer to what is required for acceptance with God is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is what is required. And that is what Paul is going after here. He's saying there's only one thing that's required for a person to be a Christian. And it's not external law-keeping. It's not living up to this personal moral code. It's not these ethical things that we surround ourselves with in order to, to modify our behavior and the things that we do. What Paul's saying is there's one thing that's necessary for salvation. And this is what he's contending for. This is the hope of the gospel. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the good news. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what do we mean by the gospel of Jesus Christ? We talk about gospel all the time as if it's something that everyone understands and has the same idea of the definition. But what does gospel mean? Well, gospel means good news. And the gospel is that faith in Christ saves us, not the deeds that we do. Faith in Christ saves us, not the deeds we do. Salvation, then, comes through Jesus Christ and through him alone. And while obedience to the Ten Commandments are necessary for holy and righteous living, right? Don't worship any other gods. Don't murder anyone. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal, so on and so forth. These are necessary for holy and righteous living. But obeying these commandments are not what saves us. Because the hope of the gospel is 
the good news of the gospel is Jesus has done something that we can never do. And that's the foundation of what Paul is getting at. And I'm spending so much time here on this intro as we're going to move through the text rather quickly. I'm spending so much time on this intro because it's important for us to understand what Paul is getting at, why this is foundational for him in, as, his, as he's approaching the Galatians, as he's writing this letter to the churches of Galatia. So we can't be moral enough to earn God's salvation. I think it's important for us to to remind ourselves of that. that. God's love for us doesn't change based upon whether or not we did our Bible reading for the morning. It doesn't change on whether or not, based on whether or not I got caught in a lie, right? I mean, it doesn't change based on whether or not I stumbled and fell in sin. God's love for us doesn't change in that sense. And so what we need to recognize is this this contending that Paul is doing for the gospel. It's a significant work. And so it's only through Christ that we can become holy and righteous in God's sight. So the Jewish ceremonial laws of Paul's day, they weren't so much abolished or replaced by a new covenant. Here's what happened. They were fulfilled by Christ. You see, that's the Christ accomplished it on our behalf. See, God's standard of holiness doesn't change, but this is what Jesus did. He accomplished holiness on our behalf. And that's what's such good news about the gospel. Jesus gives us this holiness, this righteousness, that doesn't mean that we don't strive for righteous and holy living, but he makes us righteous before God. He declares us righteous in God's presence. He has justified us. He has brought us into a right relationship with God. And this is why Paul is contending for this. And so this is what Paul is reacting against. He's reacting against a false gospel that the Judaizers were preaching which threaten the very gospel message itself. Because here's what their gospel was doing. It was circumventing Christ's sacrificial work by claiming we have something to do in addition to the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But this is a lie. We have nothing else to do. We have nothing to add to the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He died on the cross to save us from our sin. Then he rose from the grave. Praise God. He did the work. He came. He gave his life. He redeemed us. You can't add anything to that. You can't be good enough. You can't obey enough rules. You can't guard your behavior enough to add to your salvation. doesn't mean you don't need to guard your behavior. doesn't mean you don't need to pursue righteousness and holiness. That's just not what our salvation is contingent upon. And so Paul's not saying the law is all bad. He's not saying do away with the Ten Commandments. What he's saying is don't base our salvation on something that's faulty. Base our salvation, the gospel, on the hope of Jesus Christ, for it's in him and him alone that we can be saved. That's the contention that Paul is fighting for. And so Paul sees the threat here for what it is. It's an assault on the truth of the gospel which affects the unity of the church. 
And so here's the kind of the thesis statement of where we're going this morning. The truth of the gospel is essential to Christian faith and fellowship. The truth of the gospel is essential to Christian faith and fellowship. And so I want to give us two affirmations this morning. The first one you'll probably say, duh. So the church's unity in the gospel is important to God. All right? The church's unity in the gospel is important to God. You know, if the unity of the church is important to God, then it stands to reason that it should be important to us as God's children, right? If something's important to parents, it stands to reason that they want their children to see it and to deem it as important for the family as well. So unity, though, it doesn't mean being compliant in everything that comes our way. Sometimes unity demands our staunch opposition, and in such cases as things that threaten the essentials of the gospel, we must stand, like Paul, like Barnabas, resolute in our affirmation of the gospel in order to preserve what's been handed down, this gospel message that's been handed down throughout the generations of Christ's church. And so first, we need to note that the gospel is for all people. The gospel is for all people. Now, that's a statement that we probably all in here would say, right on, I affirm that. I affirm that the gospel is for all people. In fact, we'd most likely say, that's nothing new for us, right? But then the question is, how, how are we living out this truth? And the way we proclaim this truth, that the gospel is for all people, and the way that we live out this truth might be two different things. And so notice what Paul is saying in verse 2. He's going to bat for what he is saying. He's standing for the truth of the gospel. He's not content to just back away in the background and say, well, we'll let them believe what they want to believe, and we'll believe what we want to believe about the gospel. No, he says, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles there in verse 2 right? This word for Gentiles, it's the word ethnos. It's where we get our word for nations. It's the nations. And so when you read the word Gentile in the New Testament, remember, he's talking about all nations other than Jew. And so that's the distinction. There's Jew and there's Gentile. Sometimes we read New Testament writers who say uh, neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor Scythian nor barbarian nor free man or I got that a little backwards, but you get what I'm saying. So Sometimes we read those different categories, different distinctions, but when he's talking about Gentiles, he's talking about all the nations. And so the gospel that Paul has been proclaiming is one that he's been proclaiming for the last 17 years. If you add chapter 1, verse 18, he says, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem for the first visit, and then chapter 2, verse 1, then after 14 years, I went up again. So here's Paul preaching the gospel message around the world, around the known world, on his missionary journeys over the last 17 years. And so this gospel that he's been proclaiming, it is God's redemptive plan and message for all people without distinction. And it's the same gospel that we proclaim today, the same good news that we proclaim today. And if you think about that, historically speaking, over the last 2,000 years, we've got, we've got this incredible truth, this gospel that has, has continued, has continued to be proclaimed across the world. And we need to recognize that this doesn't die with us. 
but it continues to go on with us. We continue to go and to proclaim this gospel around the world. And so this is a gospel that unites all people. It unites all ethnicities of the human race. Because we are now one new people in Christ. That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he writes about Christ destroying the dividing wall. Right? That we, we become one new humanity. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul talks about being new creations in Christ. We have been made new. And so we, as the human race, across ethnic boundaries, different cultures, different backgrounds. We are brothers and sisters in Christ because we all have the same Father, God, and we all have the same Lord, Jesus Christ. We as the church, we as the church ought to be a family that the world looks to to see how racism is overcome, to see how we can cross ethnic, ethnos, boundaries, right? to see how love for fellow image bearers of God triumphs over physical appearance. So the gospel is for all people. Paul proclaims this gospel among the Gentiles, but we also see something that's of significance as we continue to look at verse 2. We recognize that it was God who caused Paul to go up to Jerusalem in the first place. Look at what he says. He says, because of a revelation. I went up because of a revelation set and set before them the gospel. So there was a revelation that God gave Paul. So Paul is walking in God's will and God's timing for Paul to go to Jerusalem in this moment, at this time, in order to bring this gospel and to seek the unity of the church. We can't be certain what the revelation was. Um, Most seem to think it had to do with the famine that was happening in Jerusalem and the collection that Paul was taking up among the churches to bring relief to the poor in Jerusalem, which incidentally comes back in verse 10 whenever, uh, whenever the Apostle John says, only remember, uh, only remember the, ver- the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. And so we see Paul even probably going to Jerusalem with this idea and desire to remember the poor. And this even in and of itself, shows the unity of the gospel and that two brothers from two different cultures can have the same outcome, the desire to remember the poor. You see how focusing on the gospel brings unity and not disunity. And that's one of the the hopes that Paul is trying to drill down into. And I want you to notice also in verse 2, the way that Paul approaches the apostles. Now, Paul was right. He could have gone in, guns blazing, right, barrels hot, just firing off at the apostles saying, how are you sending these Judaizers, this group, into the church to distort and to cause division? But that's not what he did. Instead, he's, he notes, I went to them privately. I pulled them aside privately, and we had this discussion. Perhaps the reason he did this was out of respect for them so that They wouldn't feel threatened in his coming to them, right? I think there's a right way to approach people and a wrong way to approach people. And Paul is a master at knowing when to put the brakes on and when to go full speed ahead, right? And so he says, he does this in verse 2 at the end, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, 
Paul is not concerned that the gospel he's been preaching for the last 17 years has been a false gospel. He's just waiting on pins and needles, hoping that the apostles are going to affirm what he's been teaching. No, instead, he's, he's fearful maybe for the, the continuing of the mission of the church, of the work that he had done in preaching the gospel being undone. You know, that's what can happen, brothers and sisters, if we allow false teaching to come into our midst, if we drift from the essentials of the gospel. So the gospel message was a message for all people. And what Paul is contending for is one does not have to become Jewish in order to be a Christian. But we also see the gospel message must not be compromised. The gospel message must not be compromised. Paul speaks to this in verse 3 when he says... Even Titus, who was with me, wasn't forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And in verse 5, he goes on to say, we didn't yield in submission even for a moment so that they could uphold the truth and the distinctiveness of the gospel. In fact, in verse 4, what Paul says is that they were, they were spies. Yet because of these false brothers secretly brought in, this is, they were spies. They, they came in under the guise of something else, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that, we might, so that they might bring us into slavery, into bondage. So what Paul's saying is adding something to the gospel actually enslaves us. It doesn't free us. But the work of the gospel is to free us. And some might argue, well, yeah, you say the work of the gospel is to free you, but from what I've seen, whenever a person comes to faith in Jesus and begins believing in him, now they've got all these rules and restrictions that govern their life. They can't do this, and they can't do that, and they can't do this, and they can't do that. I would say that's just a misrepresentation and a misunderstanding of the hope of the gospel and the freedom that comes from walking with Christ anyway. Because the freedom that comes from walking with Christ is, is being delivered from bondage to be to experience the grace and the joy of, of knowing God, of experiencing his goodness, of knowing his indwelling spirit within us to direct, to guide, to lead us in all of our ways. And so in verse 4, Paul is saying the gospel gives us freedom. They wanted to bring us into slavery, but the gospel frees us. You know, this is one of the things that we... We see moralistic religion, it, it presses its followers into adopting kind of very specific rules and, and regulations on how we are to live out the Christian life. So, you know, you've got to dress a certain way or you've got to have this certain behavior. You've got to wear your hair this particular way or you can't do this or you can't do that. And we get kind of caught up in all the, uh, the those those intricate details of what you can and can't do and we somehow take our eyes off the leadership of the Holy Spirit, right? Following the direction and the conviction of the Spirit in our lives. You know, but if your salvation depends on obeying the rules, then I think you want your rules to be very clear, very specific. Tim Keller says... If this is the way you, you see life and you live life, then you, you don't want love your neighbor as yourself because that's an impossibly high standard which has, which has endless implications. Instead, you want something like don't go to movies, don't drink alcohol, don't eat this type of food or that type of food, right? You see, following Christ is not about all the regulations. It's about being sensitive and following the Holy Spirit of God. 
It's about learning what it means to love one's neighbor as oneself. You know, and the, the focus here for Paul is freedom in Christ, not returning back into bondage. And so Titus was a test case. Paul brought Titus to Jerusalem as a visible demonstration of God's grace and salvation. Since Titus was a Greek, bringing him into Jerusalem could have been taken as inflammatory, but Paul was willing to take the risk. Now, imagine for a moment that you're a season ticket holder to, an LSU, to LSU football, okay? And you've got incredible seats, and you've, over the years, you've developed a rapport with all the fans that are around you. You guys know each other on a first-name basis. In fact, you even, you know, sometimes, occasionally hang out uh, for, for the big games. You hang out and tailgate with them because it's just a fun thing to do. And so you've got these season tickets to the game that you've been waiting to go to all season. You know what game that is? It's Alabama, right? And so you've been waiting for that Bama game. And the person that was going with you, all of a sudden, they call you up and they can't go. But look, the timing is perfect because there's a, a friend of yours from college that you haven't seen in a long time that's come into town and says, hey, I'm in town, you want to get together? And you're like, perfect. Hey, I'm going to the Bama game, do you want to come? I got an extra ticket. And they're like, yeah, I'd love to come. So you say, okay, meet me at my house at 4 o'clock. Here's my address, or four hours before the game starts. Here's my address. We'll go. We'll hang out with some of my friends. I'll introduce you to everybody. It's going to be a great time. Doorbell rings. You open the door. And to your dismay, I mean, you're, you have to blink twice. Your friend is wearing a Bama jersey. Ugh, what do you do? I mean, at that moment, it's tough, right? Because you've already made these plans to introduce your Bama jersey friend to all of your friends that you've developed over the years at the game, right? So now, what do you do? Well, a few thoughts go through your head. One thought is, okay, I'm going to offer him a different jersey. At least I can cover up, right? Or I can say, look, man, if you're wearing that jersey, you're not coming with me. Or I can just bring him and lose him in the crowd. I don't know what you would do. I'm not going to ask. But if you're an LSU football fan, you know that the angst of that kind of a situation. Well, in a much greater way, Paul takes his chances and he brings Titus to Jerusalem. Titus is a Gentile. But Paul's argument is all who are in Christ have the same jersey. We're not on different teams. We're all on the same team. And so he brings Titus into Jerusalem so he can show the apostles and show the Jerusalem church, hey, this is a brother in Christ and the gospel is for all nations and all people. So we need to understand what Paul is arguing against and what he's arguing for. What Paul is arguing against is any distortion of the gospel that seeks to minimize the grace of Christ in our salvation. What Paul is arguing against is any distortion of the gospel that seeks to minimize the grace of Christ in our salvation. Meaning this, you did not earn your salvation. And I can say that with absolute certainty because no one can earn their salvation. We can't be moral enough. 
we can't do enough good things to be saved. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what your religious pedigree is. Verse 6 tells us God shows no partiality. Here's Paul approaching the apostles, right? The untouchables, so to speak, right? But no. He says that God shows no partiality. It didn't matter to me who they were or what influence they had. No one will stand before God one day and hear God say, even though I sent my son Jesus to die for the sins of mankind and make them righteous, you have surpassed them all. You don't need his sacrifice because you're good enough to earn my favor and the favor of my salvation. It doesn't work like that. The gospel must not be compromised. And so here's what Paul is arguing for. Paul is arguing for salvation by the grace of Christ through faith in Christ. Paul is arguing for salvation alone. We could add that word alone. Salvation alone through faith in Christ. by grace of Christ, through the faith in Christ. And so that's what chapters 3 through 6 are all about. And he's saying that we are all unified by the saving work of Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And the gospel, this gospel that Paul is contending for now, is the same gospel that Peter will later contend for when he writes the epistle of 1 Peter. Listen to 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And listen to verse 10. For once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is not writing only to Jews there. He's saying this about the Gentile believers. Once you weren't God's people, but now you've become God's people. How did that happen? It happened through the cross of Christ. That's how it happened. So the second point this morning, the church's unity in the gospel is crucial to its mission. Paul knows this. He's willing to stand resolutely and without compromise to defend the gospel. And here's why. Because a divided church is a defeated church. A divided church is a defeated church. You know, when there's infighting among Christians, the focus, is, the focus on its mission always suffers. And the mission of the church is to make the glorious gospel of Christ known to all the nations. From here in Baton Rouge, in our neighborhoods that we live in, all the way to Uganda and back again. That's, that's the mission of the church. And so we partner with, with, with Bugari Baptist, with Busimbatia. Other churches partner with others. It's kind of like, like what, what James, and James, uh, James and John and Peter say to Paul. Uh, we recognize that he was, uh, he was energized by God to go and take the gospel to the uncircumcised in the same way that Peter was energized by God to go and take the gospel to the circumcised. And so we recognize that even within different congregations across the city, that there are different congregations who have different focuses and sense that God has called them to different people groups or to go and to minister to different people. Might even say the same thing individually in our lives if we, if we want to take that and make even a further application, that there are places within uh, our vocation, places that our vocation te- takes us, which others in our congregation don't have the opportunity to go. 
they have the opportunity to share in ways that others do not. And so if we see vocation as a calling from God, right, not just a, a pastor, but if we see vocation as God's calling in our life, then we begin to approach our vocation very differently, don't we? God, how do you want to use me today as your hands and feet? Lord, how do you want to use me today to teach the kids? Lord, how do you want to use me today to invest in my children? How do you want to use me today to invest in the kids that are in my classroom? How do you want to use me today to invest in those at the plant? How do you want to use me? So on and so forth, right? And so when we begin to recognize vocation as calling, it, it changes the way that we approach living out the gospel. And so the mission of the church is to make the glorious gospel of Christ known. This is why Paul was so bold in his approach to the apostles at Jerusalem. There was a recognition of their calling from God in that God had energized each of them for this specific work. I like what one author says here, N.T. Wright. He says, "If, if only church leaders and ordinary members could be humble enough to recognize the gracious work of the one God in and through those who work in different in a different way with different people and with different traditions, the gospel would go forward no matter how steep the cliff on either side. Just a personal note of application, even within our own tradition as Southern Baptist. It grieves me, especially as a Louisiana Baptist, to see some of the infighting that goes on and has been going on for the last several years. I'm not a kind of guy that likes to be involved in any kind of political discussion. I don't like to send out tweets that call people out. I'm just, that's just not the nature of who I am. And, and you know that over the years as you've, uh, as you've gotten to know me. You know, but there's a group within the, the gathering of Louisiana Baptist churches who've launched attacks against anyone who affirms the doctrine of election over against free will. And this charge has been led from the top down within our denominational line so that anyone who disagrees with the leadership's particular view gets ostracized. This is the opposite of unity within the church. And the most recent example, most recent example is the smear campaign that our state paper, the Baptist Message, has run against one of the candidates for the Southern Baptist Convention's presidency, J.D. Greer. Uh, and it's J.D. Greer who's, um, who's the le- latest article that's been run, and instead of having an interview, uh, they cite things that he said uh, in other interviews, and they pull out the most contentious things and put them right there as a big spread in the midst of the paper. On the other side, well, it doesn't matter. So my point is that there's there's just, this is divisive, right? This is, uh, this is something that is disunifying. And it's really disappointing. And so without getting into any of the divisive issue over, over a doctrinal problem or a doctrinal struggle, whether or not a person affirms a doctrine of God's sovereignty and election, or a person affirms or holds the position of man's free will to choose God and their salvation, 
if you're a Christian, let me give you the bottom line. If you're a Christian, we all affirm that God saves us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We all affirm that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising sin and shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. We all affirm that without Jesus, we have no substitute to pay for our sins, and without Christ's resurrection, we have no hope of eternal life. So that's the unity of the gospel. We can be unified there. There doesn't have to be division and dissension. Last week, we attended a conference called Together for the Gospel, which is a conference that happens every two years, and it focuses on on crossing denominational lines to share what we have in common with the gospel. And there are many denominations present, not only Baptist, but Presbyterian, Evangelical Free, Bible Church, non-denominational, Dutch Reformed, and there are so many others that were there that I can't begin to name. So I enjoy going going to conferences like this because I hear great preaching from solid guys and guys who are pastors, and I get to fellowship with brothers from different denominations, and we, we celebrate the commonality we have in the gospel. So I want to close by reading verse 10, because in verse 10, we have an important part of the Christian mission. Verse 10, only they said, the apostles to Paul, only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You know, in verse 10, we read an important part of the Christian mission. Do we think that people who don't know Jesus are concerned with the doctrinal differences we might have at hard theological points? Do you think they need to hear the hope of the gospel, right? Like if we can focus on the hope of the gospel, if we can let that be our unifying focus and mission as a church, as, as a local congregation, as an association, as a denomination, as a convention across the United States of America, Southern Baptist Convention, if we can do that, then I think we can be effective at taking the gospel to this nation and living the gospel out because when we, when we allow our focus to be divided, then the mission, we lose focus on the mission. And so Paul says that this is the very thing that they were going to do. 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life, speaking of Jesus, for us. And we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a great question for us to consider. How does God's love abide in us? How is that being manifested in our daily lives in the midst of people that we're interacting with? How does God's love abide in us? And how is it shown through us? Let us not be concerned with things that divide. Let us stand resolutely on the truth of the gospel. Let us be unified in that. And when we are, listen church, our mission into this city will just take off. Let us be unified and focused around the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, if you've recognized that you don't know the hope that comes from being united with Christ through the gospel, the good news, 
I want you to know you can know that joy and that hope today. Um, You can pray right where you're at and surrender your life to Jesus Christ, confessing your sins before him. Or if you desire to have someone walk with you through that process, you can come and speak to one of the elders at the end of the service after we finish singing in a moment. Uh, One of us will be standing over here by, uh, by the cross, and you can come and meet with us, and we'd love to share with you more about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope of your gospel. Thank you, Father, for the attentiveness of your people this morning. We pray that you would take this, your word, and seal it in our hearts and our minds. Unify us, O God, around, around the common mission, making your glorious gospel known. Let us battle against divisiveness. Let us, let us work diligently for unity in this hope of the gospel. And Lord, we know that you will do great things because of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us stand together.